Let's go ahead and find our seats and stand up at them. Welcome to church this morning, folks. Spend some time singing to the Lord. Join us from home. Welcome. It's good to sing God's praise. Let God call us to worship from his word. Psalm 89, verse 15. Let's listen to God's word. It says this, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Let's sing sing our songs to the Lord this morning.
deepest and through trials. Our shepherd king, your way is best, though tears now veil our eyes. Your steadfast love, our perfect hope, our eyes are fixed on grace. We'll have no doubt that you'll lead us home to finally see your Before the Savior's feet And sing as all the heavens resound For all eternity You are our song from age to age Our voices unite to recount your praise Again and again you are our song from age to age. We will proclaim your power to save again and again. You are our song from age to age. Our voices unite to recount your praise again.
Oh, 
Every knee will bow. 
turn our eyes to you, God. Lord, as the song instructs us to turn our eyes to you, Lord, may we do that now, God. Lord, also thank you that you do not leave us when when our eyes are not fixed on you, God, that you use circumstances, God, that you use the the trials of this year and everything that's gone on us to to cause us to, to look to you, Lord, just as you did with the Israelites, God, that you didn't leave them wandering. You didn't leave them alone, but Lord, you Lord, sometimes brought difficulty to their lives, God. Often brought difficulty into the challenges into their lives in order to turn their eyes to you, God. So do that to us and for us now, Lord. Cause us to turn our eyes and gaze upon you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. My name is Evan. I'm one of the pastors here, and thank you for joining us today for worship. Special welcome to anybody tuning in online or meeting up upstairs in our family room there. Thank you for prioritizing this time to be together and to be before the Lord. Well, this morning we've been singing about how the, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of Christ's glory and grace. And we have more opportunity now than ever to interact with the things of earth. We've got more recreation available to us, entertainment, affluence, you know, variety of cuisine and foods, and just so much out there that we can access and enjoy. Even in a year where a lot of it's shut down, we still have more than most of humanity has been privileged to have uh, for generations. And there's a lot that's after our eyes and ultimately after our hearts. And the Bible provides a few principles when it comes to relating with the things of earth. It talks about having a a posture of gratefulness and also one of carefulness. And you can see that in in certain chapters of scripture. We we looked, uh, if you can remember far back enough in our study of 1 Corinthians to chapter 10, uh, where, where Paul talks about how the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he says, you can even eat and drink and watch a sports game to the glory of God. But in that same chapter, he says, all things are lawful for me, but, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. I'm not going to be under the control of any created thing. I'm not going to give it the affections of my heart. And, and there's, a, there's a practice Sunday after Sunday that we do together of, of giving in the gathering of the church that, that's designed to, to help us. It's designed to, to give us a, a posture of gratefulness when it comes to our money. Our, our giving back to God recognizes he's the one who's provided. He's the one who has richly blessed us. He's taken care of our needs. He's given us resources to enjoy life. But it's also a way of being careful that our money doesn't control us. That it doesn't have us. We're saying all things are lawful to me, but I'm not going to be under the control of anything else but the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's several ways you can give today. There are offering boxes in the, in the back of the room. Uh, you can use our LCC app uh, or our website to give digitally. 
Uh, you can mail in a check and a few other ways that are on the screen here. Uh, but let's turn our eyes again to God as we give. Jesus, we do want your glory to capture our hearts, to have our hope, Lord, to have claim to our longing and affections. And in all the things in life that we engage in and are grateful for, Lord, we are we're glad to have them. But Lord, we, we come with a carefulness. Lord, we come with a, a sense of, Lord, you and you alone deserve our allegiance and our worship. And so our, our giving, our releasing of our hands on our money is an expression of a heart that is looking to you. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple of announcements to highlight real quick. Uh, one is that our School of the Word started up again this morning at 8 a.m. Uh, yes, that's worth applauding. Um, all of you come into the 11 o'clock service, though, you know, it poses some difficulties for that. Uh, but, but that's happening if you want to come to the 9 o'clock service uh, next Sunday and come earlier at 8 o'clock for School of the Word. It's also being live streamed, so you can tune in uh, to that. Uh, that's taking place Sunday after Sunday. And then this Tuesday, we were going to be starting up our Alpha. It's actually been pushed back one week uh, to next Tuesday. So uh, it's, it's not too late to, to register. This is, is going to be a four-week introduction uh, to some of the basics of the Christian faith and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so it, it's, it's got some limited seating uh, just because of how we've got the distance set up upstairs. But there's a, a free meal that's provided, great time of conversation. Uh, that takes place, uh, and there's some limited uh, uh, openings still available. But it's also going to be live streamed, so you can invite family or neighbors or friends over to your house on a Tuesday uh, for dinner at 7 o'clock and pull up YouTube on your TV and, and watch it together as well if you'd like uh, to do that. And then one other announcement to highlight is that coming up in October, we're going to be uh, joined by the Photo Sisters again. And I, I didn't bring up my notes with me, so that's October 20, 21st, Michael O'Brien and the Photo Sisters. The Photo Sisters have served us for many years coming in town, just gifted musicians that uh, help our hearts tune in to, to, to the glory of Jesus. And Michael O'Brien is a, another gifted worship leader. So this is going to be a night of worship together. Uh, it'll be a bit of a concert as well, but uh, it's free, so you don't have to pay to register, but you do have to sign up uh, to, to get your seat like we do for, for Sunday mornings. All right, Pastor Keith's going to bring us the word. Oh, good morning. Thank you. Great to see you guys. Special thanks in the room upstairs, families who are gathering. We recognize it's, it's a little extra effort to gather your children uh, into a setting that's not a children's ministry, but thank you for seeking to do that and being with us uh, just to hear from the Lord. Fellowship together, experience God's presence. And for all of you guys who have brought your families with you, thank you uh, for doing that. All right, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I believe that's the last time I'm going to say that. Uh, we are exiting this chapter after today. But last week we, uh, we went where this passage takes us. And that's into a, a, a question that I put as the title for last week's message and this message. The issue of the silencing of women in church. Because this Bible verse says something about that. And I want to thank uh, all of our small group participants, our covenant group leaders, 
um, got the chance to hear back from a number of them this week as they had some conversation in their small groups about this topic, right? So it's not, not one of the easier topics today to talk about. And uh, it's why we have small groups, part of the reason anyway, is so that we can, we can ask questions about why does the Bible say that? Does the Bible really mean that? Are you serious? Really, we're supposed to not say anything in church? Right? That's the stuff that was going on in small groups this past week. And that's exactly what should be going on, right? We're, we're reading the Bible and we're hearing some things. And sometimes we're like, hey, that's clear. And sometimes we're like, uh, I don't know if I get that. And we're with each other asking those questions together. So thank you guys for participating there. Let me just set the passage in front of us and I'll introduce some thoughts to us. But let's back up. We're going to really just focus on verses 33 through 35. Let's back up to verse 26. Because there's something going on in this context that when we go to analyze the answer to this question today, we need the context, which is always the case when we read the Bible. But here's where we are, right? Paul's been speaking on fellowship dimensions, spiritual gifts operating and building each other up in gathered meetings of the body of Christ. When he says, verse 26, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three And each in turn, let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one keep silent in church and speak to himself, to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. But you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now let's pray together. Father, we are eager to live in the purposes that you have ordained for our lives. And and, and Lord, every day I'm still discovering those purposes and coming to better understand them. And Father, we want to do that this morning. There's something about gathering together that you have given a great deal of instruction to the Corinthians that you preserved for us all these years later. We want to benefit from it. Lord, we want these verses to accomplish what you set them in this Bible to do, to build us up. So God, help us this morning. Interact with these words. Receive much life from them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, here's a moment where a topic gets set before us. And it's going to get, it's going to get pulled on. By, I'm going to say three things are going to pull on this topic. And it's probably true of every topic that we could mention, right? But the topic today has to do with women in the church. And so just in this category, differentiating between men and women, and that's what this Bible verse does, this issue of, of when women's roles, women's activities, right? So it's going to get pulled on, I'm going to say, by three things. There are 
trends out there in the world that we live in. There are traditions that all of us bring to this moment. And then there's truth from God that's speaking. Everything that goes on in our lives could fit in those categories. But, but think for a minute. In our day, we come to this moment of we're going to address an issue that's, that's specifically speaking to women and women's activities. Uh, we're, we're doing that in a day when women in this country were only afforded the opportunity to vote just a hundred years ago. Just a hundred years ago. There's a lot of life, a lot of stuff taking place that it made sense that, hey, that's cool if that just gets left alone for years and years. And then at some moment, finally, that changes for women just a hundred years ago. We, we live in our own time frame where there have been inappropriate relationships and, and pressures that have been put upon women by men that have been really acceptable and covered over and closed the eyes to for years and years in the workplace, in the entertainment in, industry. We've watched these things unfold and we've watched our culture come to a moment where it said, hey, you know what? That's not all right. It's not okay that women should be treated that way. And so suddenly something that was okay isn't okay anymore. And so this issue is being addressed differently in our day and rightly so. And I think we should all be glad for that. Part of what we're, we're hearing in uh, the conversations of our culture today is something that to me that feels like um, tear down all power structures that exist. All right, so when we come to whatever subject it is that's out there, because we see abuses in these power structures, the remedy that's being offered is tear them down. Right? And that's going to sound like defund the police in some settings. It's going to sound like it's anti-establishment. It's going to sound like anytime institutions are spoken of and people with power up in those institutions are spoken of, whether it's just wealthy people or whether it's people of power, whether it's churches that have any form of structure and authority in them, suspect those settings because you know those people they're probably up to no good they're probably taking advantage of somebody right so this is the mood that we're in right now to come to any topic that's that's speaking into this category and and we're bringing our own stuff right that's the trends right the trends if you guys are old enough the trends in this category for women you, know, you have a, a movement taking place in the late 50s, early 60s, and 70s, the, the women's liberation movement, feminism that came on the scene is a trend. It's a voice that's speaking about this issue from a certain perspective, and you move that all the way to our day, and there still is a trend and a voice that's being heard. But you and I, personally, we're all bringing some traditions with us as well, right? So trends pull on this, but, but then our traditions pull on this. And so within our, our church, you'd have people who come from different backgrounds. They were raised differently. The functions and the activities of men and women in your home that you grew up in were done a certain way. You learned something from that. That made sense to you. You held it in high esteem or you learned to hate it. And so you're either revolted by something. So your tradition is a lot of dysfunction and maybe abuse that, you know, any topic is going to answer to that. When I go to talk about this, it's going to answer to that. 
or, or maybe you have a view that's, that's been healthy and it's been settled and it's in place and it makes sense to you. And so when this su- subject comes up for you, it interacts with a tradition that feels very differently. But they, they still could be traditions, right? And there's a lot of us who uh, sort of grew up in a time frame in which Leave it to Beaver explains what people should look like. Right, those of you who are old enough. Some of y'all are going, what the heck is a beaver? Um, right, June Cleaver, with the lifestyle that she lived in the 1950s, is a definition for a woman, and so that just stuck with some folks for a while there. And so when you go to pick up the Bible and it talks about women and women's roles, sometimes the tradition in us makes it answer to that. Right, so so is that that what a woman should look like? Should look like June? That's the definition for what godly women look like. So all of us are are bringing with us some some baggage, some issues, some background when it comes to this topic. But you know, God speaks into this topic, right? God's truth weighs in on the roles and the activities of men and women. And today, it does it in a way that's, that's sort of not cool to do it. It makes a differentiation between men and women. It doesn't blur the distinctions. And in some places there aren't distinctions, but in some places there are. And today's culture is blurring those every chance it can get. It doesn't want to treat men and women like they're different. It wants to treat them like they're the same. And so if that's a trend that's in us, then we want the Bible to sound like it's doing that too. And and in this passage, it's not going to do that. It's going to address women differently than it's going to address men. And so what do we do with that, right? How do we interact with this issue? All right, so here's two things I want to do. Do the first one quickly and clearly. Uh, This is a huge topic. If If I showed you some of the biggest books in my office, the only ones that would outweigh the size of these books are systematic theology books. Uh, other than that, the biggest books in my office have to do with men and women, <laughs> men's issues, women's issue. What are the definitions for those two uh, activities and lifestyles? All right. So huge topic. I'm going to narrow into two issues. One, what this verse is not saying. I just want to make sure and answer that clearly. Cause I know that generated a lot of stuff last week that was, wait, wait, women can't, what, what, wait. All right, we're going to answer that clearly. Secondly, why this verse would say anything different to women than it does to men. Why does the Bible do that? All right, so let's look at this first question. What this verse is not saying. And I wrote that out real quickly so we could, you could know exactly where we're going. It's not saying that women aren't allowed to speak in the context of church meetings. So if you read this verse last week and you're like, wait, wait. So like when those women go up to the microphone and give a prophetic word, they're like, they shouldn't have been doing that. Why isn't everybody stopping them? Right? Uh, Because that's not what we believe this verse is teaching that women aren't allowed to speak or communicate or give input or function in the church setting. Now I don't say that because to see that differently is old fashioned or that, you know, get with the times, Keith, of course, women are allowed to do that. That's, that's not why I'd make a case for that. I'd make a case for that as any of us should, if you're going to answer why you have a view on something like this, you should be able to look to the Bible to find that view, right? So if I bring other Bible verses with me to this verse, I'm going to find verses like this, Acts chapter two, verse 17, 
where God talks about these last days outpouring of the spirit, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And he goes on and says, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So it is God's intention that in the last days when he pours out his spirit, it would be poured out on male and female. Both sons and daughters would would receive something by God's design and plan that would result in them prophesying and speaking things that the Holy Spirit has given them to speak. And as we've studied that gift in the last couple of weeks, we recognize prophecy is for public upbuilding. It is intended to be a public gift. That's why we seek that gift more than we seek the private gifts. We seek prophecy because it builds others up. So women are supposed to build up the church through the gift of prophecy. So every woman here should be heeding what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 to seek the gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul opened up teaching about the gifts, he says to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, not just to men, but to each is given the manifestation of the spirit. Acts chapter 21, just a just, just passes by this, but the way it says it is there's no problems here, right? That highlighting Philip the evangelist saying that he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They were used in the gift of prophecy. So they were known for that. If they had been in this church, we would probably regularly be hearing from them in the mic, coming on a Sunday morning to edify the church through the use of the gift of prophecy. In Titus chapter two, we're, we're just given activities of, the, of women taking place where they are teaching and sharing things in the church. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And, to, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So in a church setting, women are to teach. And in this context, there's, there's a little bit of a boundary that gets mentioned here, that they are to be teaching young women and they're to teach them particular things. I don't think this is an exhaustive explanation for the only things women are allowed to speak about, but it's an example but it's clearly an example where women are teaching and functioning in a local church setting. Acts 18, 26, again, just another example of women functioning in the church. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, speaking of a man named Apollos, who was an itinerant preacher and evangelist, was going from town to town speaking. But when Priscilla and Aquila, right, a married couple, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it wasn't just Aquila who took him aside and explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately. It's Priscilla and Aquila. Both of them come together with this man and have a conversation. Priscilla participates in this. Priscilla is lending insight and explanation to help Apollos see some things more accurately. And in none of these places is there any sense that anybody's out of bounds. 
Nobody's throwing a flag on the play and saying, whoa, whoa, that, was, that wasn't right. But we do find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, right? We do find something being said that in that setting, women are to be silenced. And so that gets treated a little bit differently. And so let me back up a little bit further in, in Corinthians. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul's going to acknowledge some other activity that women are doing in chapter 11. And he's going to treat that a certain way. And it needs to be noticed before we try to understand 1 Corinthians 14. So here's Paul to the Corinthians just a few chapters earlier in verse 2. He says, now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I've delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. All right, we're going to come back to that verse and take it apart. But this is where Paul's explaining something in this same category that we're going to land in a little bit later. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. I'll just briefly talk about head coverings in just a second. But notice what women are doing in this passage. They are praying and prophesying in the meeting of the gathering of the church. So clearly, the, the same Apostle Paul who's going to write chapter 14 is writing chapter 11. He's, a, he's aware that women function in these gifts and in these ministries in the public gathering of the church. And then he's going to explain something about head covering that I'll, I'll just unpack it briefly because we don't have time to do all these. Verse 6 he says, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut off her hair or keep it short. But, but since it's a disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Right? So there's this moment in which, again, this, is, this activity is taking place in the church, and Paul is concerned for the Corinthians in what they're communicating to each other, what their way of doing things is, is maybe touching on some other issues that he's trying to help them better understand. And one of those in chapter 11 is the issue of head covering and, and authority, right? There's an issue of authority taking place. And so when women would pray and prophesy, he's going to address not that they're praying and prophesying as though that was wrong, as though they shouldn't do that, as though that needs to stop. No, no, it's, it's the matter of whether you're wearing or not wearing a head covering when you do that. Because in that moment, in that culture, it would have been clear you would have been making a statement by how you did or did not cover your head. Now, most of us in this room right now are going, what statement would you be making? Because we don't practice this. And this verse 
has two pieces to it. It's got the expression of authority that would have been understood in the Corinthian church. And it's got the issue of authority. That's a biblical issue that travels through time. So there are two different issues here. One is the expression of, and the best illustration I can give is is wearing a wedding ring, right? Uh, I know you know what this means. I know everybody who comes in contact with me, you know what this means. It means my life is joined to another person in marriage. But, But this isn't marriage, it's a symbol of marriage, right? And, you know, those of you guys who've ever been around guys at work or whatever, I don't know if you've ever, you know, they talk about taking their ring off and going out. You know, are going to go out on the town tonight and they're not going to wear their ring. That's all they said. But they said a whole lot more than that, didn't they? You understood what you mean by that is you are going to make a statement to everybody who gets around you that you're not married. And that's the statement you want to make when you take that ring off. All right, so the same way that we understand what this symbol means and we understand what it means to take it off, they understood what a head covering meant and they understood what it meant to take it off. I would say that that expression of a head covering or not a head covering was something clearly understood in Corinth that is not clearly practiced or understood today. So don't think the head covering dimension plays out in our culture today. However, The issue of authority does play out. It always plays out. It plays out from Genesis through Revelation. That there is an ordered authority in God's world that we are interacting with from time to time. And we should be careful with how we interact with it. So so what's the difference between what's going on in chapter 11, where women are praying and prophesying, but in chapter 14, they're being told, don't do that. What's, what's the difference? All right, well, there's not a lot of detail here. So if anybody wants to disagree with me, I get why you want to do that. Uh, but context always matters. So when I go to the context of chapter 14, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to right above this thing, right when Paul goes to tell women to be silent, he's already issued some silent orders already, right? He's already told those that if there's nobody there to interpret, be silent, Right? Don't, don't, don't continue, don't function in that gift because there's, there's not, he's always already mentioned submission as well. He's already mentioned the prophets, spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. He's already mentioned to the church that there is an order when you come together. So it could be that somebody's going to bear authority and say, okay, okay, that's enough of those words. Let's not do any more of that. They're going to have the right and the authority to function that way and say, Hey, we've heard from two or three. Let's, let's, let's move on to some other ministry and some other activities. And that's not quenching the spirit. That's not wrong. That's order within God's church. And in the same way, he gives instruction that these prophetic words are to be weighed when they're given. Someone, some are going to have this responsibility to weigh these words, which is going to involve saying, hey, that's a good word or it's not a good word. That word's okay or it's not okay. People are going to ask questions about those words. I believe it's in that context that Paul is instructing women differently than he's instructing men and perhaps instructing those leading the meetings, right? So there is a differentiation being made here where women in that activity, again, because we just did chapter 11 where women are allowed to pray and prophesy, but in this activity, they should not do that. And so a differentiation gets made here, right? So I wrote this in your outline. If you guys got notes, the context of this silence 
is in the setting of the weighing of prophetic utterances. Women are to speak in the church in numerous ways, but there's something about this activity that has boundaries, which raises our second question. Why would the Bible speak to women one way and men differently in certain moments? Why is that there? All right, well, let me run you through some things. This is a big picture of some important stuff, but it's, it's a lot to race through, but I'm gonna do my best to do it quickly. There, there is an issue of headship and authority that's in the New Testament, it's all throughout scripture that is functioning in this moment that I believe that is being flirted with being done in a way that Paul's not okay with that, right? In the same way that the head covering issue touched that, wasn't that praying and prophesying touched it? It's whether you are representing yourself as being under authority. That's the issue that Paul brings out in chapter 11, right? So go back to chapter 11 with me just for a second. Verse three, Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So when Paul goes to bring up the issue of, of authority that functions in this place called the church, listen, listen to the pieces he pulls into this conversation, right? This is not just a, hey, ladies, y'all listen up. This is about you. He says the head of man Every man is Christ. That's where he starts. Then he says the head of a wife is her husband. And then he says the head of Christ is God. So when Paul says, you know, I need to explain this whole authority headship issue thing. He pulls God into the conversation right here. He pulls the Christ and God the Father into this conversation. So part of you and I ever understanding authority means we've got to stare into the Godhead and learn something from God himself, not just from the way men and women do things, but the way God does things. In verse seven, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God but woman is the glory of man. All right, I'm not gonna unpack these things in detail, but clearly what is there is a differentiation. Paul clearly points to glory in man and glory in women in a different way. He says they are different. And that shouldn't shock us. Right? The Bible displays God's glory in all kinds of ways. Right? You and I can stare out at creation and get a glimpse of God's glory and beauty and wonder and awe. The Bible says the heavens are telling of the glory of God, but I'm pretty sure they're telling of the glory of God in a way that's different than the way I'm telling of the glory of God. Right? You don't stare at me like a starry, starry night and go, the vastness of you, you know? uh, no, just me. But, but we say things and we live things and we do things and we do that as men and we do that as women and the glory of God is different, expressed differently, right? So it's just, it's just the truth. And then there's aspects where Paul appeals to these differences because they're part of God's design. Verse eight, for man was not, made from woman, but woman 
from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Right, so Paul's trying to explain something right now, but he's going to reach back to creation. He's going to say, remember how this all got started. God took dust and formed it and breathed his life into it and formed man. This is how Adam gets his start. But then when he created Eve, he took a rib out of Adam and fashioned out of that rib Eve and gave Eve to Adam. And then Paul picks all that information up like, that's helpful for us. That what God did and the way God did it gives us some insights on this man, woman, husband, wife dimension. Because this is very much that God's got a very much a husband, wife dimension in it. Not just a man, woman dimension. So there's something about God's design that when you and I go to understand what's it? What's God's purpose for me being a husband, wife, and to function in these different roles that God's given? I learned something by looking back at creation. And then verse 10, Paul says something even more curious. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Right? So if you read in scripture, you're going to find the angels are these these angelic hosts that God created. Remember, they were the, the choir that sang as God created everything. And they, they, they wrote music and praised God and sung to the top of their voices about the awesomeness of God when he was putting everything in place, when he was ordering everything. And then, then they interact with humanity and they're called these watchers and they watch things on earth and they go back before the throne of God and they have conversations with God about what they've been watching. And apparently they watch the church and actually the New Testament bears witness to that, that they watch the church living out the order that God created originally. And that order is going to be represented in a particular way by the way in which men and women function in that setting. And so for the sake of the angels, let authority be done a certain way that reflects the original order and let it be found in this place today. Now, a, a lot of times when you come to a passage like this, and maybe you guys have, have, have studied some of these passages, sometimes the, why are men and women treated different moments? Get greeted by somebody who explains that from a cultural standpoint only, right? And I recognize there are some cultural elements in this. But to say that, well, that's what they did in the first century. That's old school. That's Roman Greek culture. That's the way the Jews did it. You know, that's not, that's not who we are today. So we don't, we don't do these sorts of things. Notice when Paul goes to explain this, he doesn't bring any of those issues up. Instead, he goes outside of the culture to bring an explanation to us right now. And, and not only that, he goes outside of this world, if you will. He brings the angels into this discussion. And the angels are not bound by culture, right? These guys have been watching humanity play out their story since creation. So they've watched this culture do this and that culture do that. And this one dressed that way and this one guys do this and girls do that. And then they, all right, they've been watching all this. But there's something about when the church goes to touch the issue of authority, the angels are looking for that order that God created when he originally designed this, right? So here's quick some thoughts. This passage points to an image of order that exists in the Godhead, right? To explain this, you got to go back to Christ and God and include them. 
Paul's reasoning is just like there is order and differentiation in the Godhead, there is order and differentiation in the home and in the church, right? So let me, let me just visit the Godhead for a moment in this category because the, the, the trends of today feel like if you are a human being in whatever role you're in, you could be male or female in this, but if you're a human being who has to defer your will to somebody else imposing their will, then that's, that's terrible. You should resist that. You should push back against it. Now I get why anybody would say that when the backdrop is abuses and people have overstepped and they've become controlling and your interest never enters the equation. But before we, we engage the fallen dimension of this, there is a beauty of this that plays out in the Godhead that we at least need to know that, right? So two points and I'm gonna fly you through some scriptures here. The distinct roles within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have beauty and glory and perfection in them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally God but they don't do exactly the same things. Secondly, the submission and deferment within the Godhead inform all of creation about being under authority. And that's gonna be the major issue I want us to land in, that we are creatures created to be under authority. And that even gets played out in the Godhead. So let's look at a couple of passages here about God's submission, authority structure within himself. Philippians 2 Verse five, we're encouraged to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's a description of Jesus Christ. And, and none of us here would say, this passage teaches that Jesus is inferior to the Father. That we worship the Father at a certain height and level, and then we step it back a little bit when we go to worship Jesus, because you see, he's, he's a little less. I mean, there he is. He's submitting to the father. He's humbling himself. He's taking the form of a servant and he's even obedient, right? You obey those that you are under their authority. This is the posture of Jesus. But none of us would say, huh? son of God, he's inferior to the father. No, he's not inferior at all. Clearly the passage teaches that there is equality but he submitted himself, even in that equality, he submits himself to the Father. Jesus went to great lengths to explain himself to disciples and people around him. John chapter eight, verse 28 is one of those moments. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, I, I, I'm God. And that I do nothing on my own authority. Isn't it interesting that the son of God would clarify for everybody, 
I'm not acting out of my own authority. I am, I am under another authority. I'm acting out of that. I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Right now, can you, can you hear within God the beauty and the wonder of God the Son who takes on this posture? He has his own authority, but he doesn't do anything out of that authority. He does out of his father's authority, who taught me, right? Isn't the teacher greater than the one who taught? Well, he assumes a posture because he's not greater, but yet Jesus assumes a posture of being taught what to do, of being sent, right? So there is a sense of command and there is a will besides Jesus here. I am doing that which is pleasing to him, this is what Jesus said. Hey, I want to make sure everybody understands this. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus, what you got going today? Whatever the father says. That's how he operated every day. And when I hear Jesus explain this, I, I I don't think his hands are folded and he's kicking rocks on the ground like he, got, he drew the short stick. Like, what a bad deal I got, huh? What are you going to do today, Jesus? Whatever dad says. Like he resented this? No. He presents this like it's, it's incredibly wonderful. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so what a posture gets modeled by Jesus as he fulfills the role of the second member of the Trinity in redeeming fallen mankind. But it's not just the Son who does this. It's the Holy Spirit as well. John chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. So the Father is going in the same way that he sends the Son. Son, go. He sends the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, go. And the Holy Spirit is going to go in submission to the Father. And he's going to come to us. And then Jesus is going to elaborate on that more. John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Why do you keep bringing that up? Why does God keep making a deal out of the issue that people operate not out of their own authority? God is operating among us. Not out of his own authority, but out of the Father's authority who sent me, I am the Spirit of God ministering among us, taking up his residence in us, right? We're indwelt by the Spirit because the Father sent the Spirit and the Spirit submitted to the Father and now dwells in it. How many of us like that idea? I love the fact that the Spirit is in me, dwelling in my life. Well, he's here because the Father sent him and he submitted to that and he doesn't speak on his own authority. But, Whatever he hears, 
he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He won't take his own agenda and declare it. He's going to take from the son of God and declare the son of God's agenda to us. So there's something beautiful in the Godhead that has this authority, not my authority dimension to it. And we're invited, right? Remember, we said last week, we are image bearers of God. We are male and female image bearers of God. And so if we're imaging God, then we are gonna be imaging something that Jesus is describing about himself when he is here. And let me pull in the, into our conversation. This is not just a, a hey, ladies, y'all paying attention. Guys, you can take a break. This is not about you. Uh, no, this, this is about all of us because authority is about everybody. It's going to play out in chapter 14 in a particular way for women, but it's for all of us, right? So Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians 11, I mean, I know a big head covering, ladies make sure, but did you notice this about men? Every man, verse four, who prays and prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. Gentlemen, if you misuse and you don't locate authority correctly in your life, and you pray and prophesy, you're out of order. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So there are things that men do that set aside or dishonor authority. It's not, this is not just a woman's thing. It's not just a man and woman thing. There are angelic beings who their sin against God's purpose was that they were out of authority. They're out of line. They stepped out of where God told them to stand in his authority, right? Second Peter, I'll just give you these real quick. First chapter two, verse four, second Peter says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And in verse nine, he comes back and says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Despising, displacing, ignoring, minimizing authority is a problem with God. He's not all right with that happening. Jude 6 clarifies this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in the eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's a lot collected in scripture about this issue of authority. It's not just a women's issue. It's a men's issue. And it's an angel's issue because authority matters in the kingdom of God. And when things touch authority in a way that disorient it, mess it up, Present it in a way that's confusing down to the issue of how you cover your head and represent authority or whether you are under authority or not. The way that's done touches something that's significant. And you know, as much as I can say, there is so much importance given to this matter of authority, right? You guys remember when Jesus has finished his ministry and he's passing the baton to his disciples and he's on the, on the mountain with them and he's about to be taken up and he, and he tells them to go into all the world, right? And make disciples. Do you know what he says right before that? 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's his introduction to go therefore into all the world. This issue of authority matters. It matters to the way Jesus did ministry. It matters to the way in which we do ministry. But yet I would say, and this is where it's tough to have a conversation about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because you know, if we put the issue of men and women doing something different, it's like, okay, let's go to war. Come on, bring it on. What, what, what are you going to say? Um, how many of us are going to be deep in authority and bring that to this conversation? Or how many of us are going to be deep in the trends of today and bring that to the conversation? Right. I, would, I would run the risk of saying, I would bet most Christians have never done a study on the issue of authority throughout scripture. Just think for a moment. Have you ever read a book on authority? You ever did a word search on everywhere you could find authority in scripture and every place where somebody was interacting with authority from King David, he's got a lot of great moments in which he's interacting with authority because he, he knows there's an issue of authority here. I could take Saul out. I could kill him right now. I'm in the cave with him. I could kill him, but he wouldn't because he would not stretch out his hand against that one that God had put his authority on that man. I will not. There's a lot of issues here in this category that speak to us in this moment, right? So this is important before we get to what's so what's first Corinthians 14 and, and what's going on there in this weighing of prophetic words and this instruction for silence and when women are being treated differently than men. Uh, there's more going on here than whether or not some woman spoke out of line one day in church. This other issue is in this conversation, right? There's design elements in God. Let me just mention one more passage here. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, there's a pointing back to the design elements in the beginning. So when Paul says, hey, the reason why Corinthian church, you do this this way in regards to men and women and how they function is because of the way God designed it in the beginning. Now, Paul does the same thing to the Ephesian church in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 11. Paul says something that sounds a little bit like what's going on in Corinth. He says, let a woman... Learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So here's another moment when you pick up these words like quiet, quiet. Okay, so did that just shut down anybody giving prayer and prophetic words and men and women speaking and teaching in any kind of way? Does that shut that down? No, it does not. But there is something narrow here. There is a pointing to by Paul that there is a role and an authority in the church that women should not play over men. And that is being highlighted here. And then the reason being given in the next verse is not because of something going on in Ephesus or something in the current culture of the day. For, verse 13, here's the reason why Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. All right, so wait, wait, so Paul, so you're saying that woman shouldn't function in the church in a role of authority over men in teaching and exercising authority over men. Why, why would you say that? Well, because in the original order, God created man first and then Eve. That's his explanation. To that church, and that's still an explanation for us as well, 
It's going to point back to a time long before any cultural trends. I think Wayne Grudem says it very helpfully when he says, Paul's first reason is the order of creation. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul does not use some local situation in Ephesus for a reason, such as saying, well, women aren't as well-educated there in Ephesus. Or, for you have some disruptive women teaching false doctrine there in Ephesus. Right? Paul doesn't tell the disruptive women to be quiet. Right? He's saying this is an order issue. No, he points back to the original time of creation. Before there was any sin in the world. And sees that there was a purpose of God indicated in the order of creation. All right, so when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, you know, this, this is an, an, an issue that it tends to, to scream out to us because it's women be silent in the church, right? So it's screaming this issue of appropriateness and rightness for women. But it's under a much larger and very important umbrella of this is an issue of functioning in cooperation with God-ordained authority. That's what's in these passages in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians chapter 5. Our roles are interacting with something about the authority that God has created. So I hope you, and I know you do find here, don't know where else you've been church-wise, you would, you would find that we would be careful in this category. Some of you would say you're too careful. And I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. I think in some ways we are too careful. And we probably need to learn to how, how that needs to get adjusted. But I want you to see why it is that we're careful. Because this is in the Bible. And it was intended for the ages, not just for those folks in Corinth or in Ephesus, to interact with this, that we are doing something together as a church that interacts with God's authority here, right? So here's a little, just a thought for you. I think humanity is designed to live life in the shadow of authority. That you and I are designed by God to find authority all around us, to look for it. Here's why. I wrote this in your notes. I believe all God's creation needs a sense of authority in the same way that a compass uses true north to inform all aspects of navigation, right? Your compass, if you guys are ever used a compass, it doesn't work without a true north. It finds its direction by another's direction, right? It has to look outside of itself in order to be able to tell you, where am I, right? It is in locating true north that you are able to understand where you are. God has set authority in his creation in such a way that every encounter with authority should remind everyone of who is in ultimate authority. Everyone is to live in the shadow of borrowed authority that interferes with my fallen tendency toward autonomy, right? I don't want anybody to be the boss of me, right? I want to rule for myself. I want to be able to say where the boundaries are for my life. I want to be able to create my own labels. I want to be able to go as far as I want to go with those labels. I don't want to be limited by anybody. That's what fallen humanity feels like for all of us. And yet God has installed authority everywhere for us to live our lives in a way that more reflected his purpose in the Garden of Eden. God said it's a bad idea if you eat of that autonomous tree of good and evil. 
it's a good idea if you just take your cues from me. Just be under my authority. That's a better deal for you. And of course, man said, eh, I think I'd rather call my own shots. Thanks for the offer. And then we've lived in the fallout of that, right? But authority is all around us. And let me just tweak that thought out real quick, and then we're going to close in prayer. John chapter 19, Jesus makes an interesting statement to Pilate. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Remember, Pilate kept asking him all these questions, and Jesus wouldn't answer him. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? At this point, Jesus stops not answering. Pilate needs a lesson in authority. He's used the word twice. Let me introduce you to this word, Pilate. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus, who lived his, his ministry saying, I, I don't do anything out of my own authority. His own ministry. He looks at Pilate and says, you know what's interesting, Pilate? Is you have no idea where authority comes from. You think it comes from you. You think you have authority. And he gives him quite an education here. And it's quite an education for us as well. Where did Pilate get the authority to crucify the son of God? Where did he get that from? He got it from God. Jesus clearly makes Pilate know you would have no authority. You'd have no ability in this category unless God, my father, gave it to you. And now you're going to use it in both a corrupt way and a perfect way all at the same time. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? Most of us would be able to easily say uh, the kangaroo court that took place, the injustice that took place, this was an abuse of authority in this moment. If you follow the trial of Jesus and the Roman decision under this governor to crucify the son of God, this is an injustice, is it not? Using the very authority that God gave in order to accomplish his purpose to redeem the fallen people who are misusing authority. That's a head scratcher, isn't it? But that's exactly what God was doing here. Romans 13.1 says, Let everyone, every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Right, so there are places in this world where God has tucked authority there and there and there. Our society is a place where God has put governing authorities. Civil authorities exist by God's design. Our families are a place where God has put authority in those places. Our churches are places where God has put authority to function in unique ways. And God says, don't resist those authorities. I've put them there. First Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors like Pilate, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then he goes further. 
honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wait, wait, so be subject to the emperor and honor the emperor, right? Don't read past that too quickly without remembering. Who would they have applied that passage to when Peter writes that? Well, who was the emperor? Well, Peter circulated this letter. The emperor was Nero. I don't know if you know much about Roman history, but but Nero is, you know, very few other emperors would rival him for cornflake. This dude was nuts. He was a quack. He did unbearably weird, horrible things over and over and over again to people of all kinds of people, including Christians in particular. And yet the instruction to these Christians is that you are to be subject to and honor the emperor. Doesn't mean you agree with everything he's doing. Doesn't mean you applaud his sinfulness. Doesn't mean you come into agreement with that. But there's something about God putting authority in places that even for him, God says, you be careful how you touch that. This is a lesson, isn't it, for today? It's good that we're just a month and a half or so out from November 3rd, election day. This this is where this is a bigger topic than, hey, make sure the women understand submission. Uh, There's authority all over the place. Is everybody in this room getting submission or is it just men would like to tell the women how to be submissive? Do Do you know you're responsible to be subject to and honor Donald Trump and Barack Obama? Does that mean you agree with everything they do? Do you think they're moral giants? Do you think Nero was? I think Nero was a moral giant that you could say, oh, well, hey, Nero, now that you have gotten on the side of the issues that I'm on, I will honor you and I will be subject to the authority that you carry. No. Nero wasn't getting on your side. If he could get around you, he might light you on fire. But yet you and I live in a culture. This is where trends pull on these topics. The trend of of today, and it has been for years, for almost most of my life, is disrespect of authority. Disrespect of presidential authority. It's grown to new, new lows in our country. And there is not respect for the authority that God puts in these places. And, and we venture into those subjects. And so listen, so when God stares at this subject, hey, there's this thing called authority. And so, you know, uh, husbands can get very interested in making sure wives get this, this, you know, be subject to dimension down right. But then they stare back at you and you are just clamoring with disrespect for authority. And, and they look at a husband who never feels like he checks in with God as to what's going on in him. Everybody is under authority. Ultimately, there is only one location for authority, and it's God. Everybody else gets borrowed authority. Everybody else is standing in the shadow of somebody else's authority. So every man in this room is standing in the shadow of some other authority that's not your own. As an elder in the church, I'm standing in the shadow of authority. It's not my own. I don't get to do whatever it is that my natural proclivity is to do. I don't get to stand up here today because trust me, I would probably skirt around this issue quite a bit so I could not take the heat I'm going to get from jumping right into it. I don't get to do that. 
I'm under authority. That's not my own. Husbands in the room, you're under authority. That's not your own. You need to be more concerned about how you're doing being under authority than you are concerned about how your wife's doing being under your authority. She needs to worry about that. You need to worry about the authority that you're standing in the shadow of. All right, so this, this is an issue that's much bigger. I don't know if Eric is in, in, in the room or not. Is Eric here? He can find his way back up here if he is. Ronnie, you want to come up and play the piano real quick? I mean... <laughs> Any of you guys know how to play the piano back there? Sound guys? All right, so here's where this subject becomes a hard subject today. There's been a lot of abuse of authority all around us. And we almost feel like we, gotta, we have to protect ourselves from authority. People who are self-seeking are going to misuse authority. And it's interesting, that word for authority is, is the Greek word exousia. It means the right to exercise power. So God has given people the right to exercise power, but they abuse that right and they abuse that power. So what's the biblical remedy to that? Well, I can tell you from reading the New Testament, it's not the elimination of authority. Even though God knew that there would be husbands who would abuse this authority. He didn't say, let's do away with that. Husbands, you got no authority in your household. The elders would abuse their authority. All right, let's do away with that too. It's just, hey, would you all just equal? We're all the same. There are no elders in churches anymore. Uh, people in Washington, D.C. are going to abuse their power. Well, let's do away with that. There are no governments anymore. Let's just, everybody just, just say, everybody's equal. Everybody's equal. And you have equal function and you do exactly the same stuff. That, that's not the New Testament, is it? God's called us to live lives that have authority in them. And so here, here's what I want to do in, in just closing this section out. Because, you know, quite honestly, we don't have a problem in our church with women need to be silent in the church. Quite actually, we, our problem is the opposite. Women need to speak up more. Uh, women need to use gifts and they need to be more verbal and they need to, to give away what God has been doing in their lives more and more and more. So when we read 1 Corinthians, we don't have the problem that the 1 Corinthians had, but we do have an authority problem because we're Americans. And so we view authority in a way that's really kind of hostile to the Bible and it makes us feel like if you impose your will on me, you are wrong for doing that. And yet Jesus celebrated the will of the Father imposed on him and sought to fulfill it in order to bring glory to God. And so there's something that you and I need a, some help, some rewiring in this category. That we don't see authority coming at us and like protect ourselves from that. And we, we welcome authority into our lives and it's used for the glory of God. Let, let's stand up together.